Thanks, fellas. That was great. Well, as uh, Edward mentioned, uh, Jack is not feeling too well. He, he had a fever Friday, so he kind of gave me a hint that I might need to get ready to, to back him up this morning. And then this morning he called me at 6.30, said, uh, can't go. So the title of this message, interestingly enough, is I don't know who to turn to. So <laughs> actually I do, but... Uh, Our text will be in Psalm 46 this morning, but before we read it together, I want you to go on a journey with me. I know some of you may have had a rough week, and so I want you to to come on a passenger ship with me. We're going to set sail for Europe, cross the Atlantic together. Um, Let's let's take us back in time, say, 125 years, okay? And there you are, you're sitting on the deck relaxing and enjoying the the sun and the the sound of the waters. And while you're there, you notice a man who is sitting there as well. And he's looking out over the the ocean and he's crying. And at the same time, he he pauses periodically to, to, looks like writing something on a pad of paper or a note. He's doing this several times. He'd stop, look up, gaze over the horizon as the ship would rise and fall with with the waters. And then he would cry some more and and write some more and you're kind of edging over you're curious as what this man is going through what what is he uh, crying about the man notices you you got a little bit too close and he welcomes you to come sit with him and talk and at first you feel a little bit embarrassed that uh, you were eavesdropping so to speak on his personal time but your curiosity gets the best of you. And, and the man had a, had a real gentle spirit about him. So you go and sit with him and begin a conversation. And you can't help but asking what, what it was that was bothering him. He proceeds to tell you about the difficult times he had come upon recently. Just three years ago, he had lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. And then the year after that, the great Chicago fire wiped out much of his family fortune. He and his wife had planned a trip to go to Europe together, and he had some business dealings, so he had to stay behind. So he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him. And this is where his voice begins to get a little more shaky. His reddened eyes begin to tear up. And then he says, their ship was struck by a British sailing ship on their way, and within minutes they went down. I received a cable from my wife, which only said, saved alone. What shall I do? He said, my precious four girls drowned. And you stand there speechless. I mean, what do you say? Something like that. There's a lump in your throat and you really empathize with this man. But though you realize he's greatly sad and there's a peace about him. During your conversation, the ship had been slowing down. And and at one point in the middle of your discussion, it had stopped. And the captain, who you hadn't noticed before, had come up and he got the attention of the man you were speaking with and he said, excuse me, sir, we think this is where it went down. We thought you might want a moment. They'd actually stopped the ship. And so the man excuses himself and says, I I need to go spend some time alone. And he goes over to the railing and, and ponders and looks over. But before he goes, he said, sir, I don't want you to think my dear ones are there, pointing down to the ocean. He said, They are safe, folded, the dear lambs. So the man excuses himself, goes over to the railing, and you can't help but wonder, what was he writing? So you peer over and and lift up the pad of paper that he had set down. And it is on that pad of paper you read that he had written a song. The first words of that song as you read said, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well with my soul. You see, Horatio Spafford did not write that song amidst great blessing and prosperity. He wasn't sitting beside or behind a grand desk as he wrote it. It wasn't behind a beautiful piano that he penned these words. But he forged this song over the watery graves of those whom he cherished most in this world. And as I studied the history behind this hymn, I I couldn't help but wonder, how could a man who had suffered such a great tragedy, probably beyond anything that most of us here will ever suffer, how could he in the midst of that respond by writing one of the most encouraging hymns in our time? Job, who lost even more than Horatio Spafford, he had seven children. He lost all his possessions. In fact, he lost his health, did he not? But he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
I mean, do these reactions seem impossible to you and foreign? Do you ever wonder if you could respond this way in difficult times? I mean, I do. How does someone have such great faith in God and peace in the midst of tragedy? Edward mentioned Martin Luther earlier. He faced much opposition and hardship in his life, did he not? Even many threats upon his life. And it was during those times that he turned to Psalm 46, and he found in that psalm great comfort in the midst of those trials. During bouts of depression, Luther was often quoted as saying, Come, let us sing the 46th psalm and let them do their worst. And it was this psalm that Martin Luther based at him, A mighty fortress is our God. And it is from that that I want us to look at that same psalm where we together will find comfort in the midst of God's, God's comfort in the midst of difficult times. God's comfort in the midst of difficult times. Please turn to Psalm 46 as I read there. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Salah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the most holy dwelling, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolation in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. And in the title, it says that it is a psalm of the sons of Korah set to the Alamoth, a song. And this book is contained in the second section of the five sections of the Psalms. Its title tells us that it was authored by the sons of Korah. These also, these also authored uh, about ten of the other psalms that are listed in the Psalter. And we learn that they were Levites. They had various responsibilities within the temple. In fact, First Chronicles 6 tells us that they were appointed by David himself to be musicians and singers in temple worship. They were Calvary Bible Church's equivalent of the sons of Willis, or I guess son of Willis at this point. But what's interesting is these... Uh, these singers, these musicians, they descended from Korah. You remember him. He was the one in Numbers who had led a rebellion against Moses in the wilderness. And as a result, God opened up the earth and swallowed he and many others who were part of that rebellion. But in the amazing grace of God, he preserved a line from Korah. Some of his sons survived that. And here, later in their gen- a later generation, was given the responsibility to lead in temple worship. It's an amazing picture of God's grace. The title also notes that this psalm was a song to be set to Alamoth, which likely means soprano voices or, or a high pitch. This psalm was to be sung. It was to be sung by God's people. And within it, there's no historical date or, or event by which we can know for certain exactly the time period that this psalm was written. But there are some indications. Verses 5 and 6 speak of God's protection of Jerusalem from her enemies. Verses 8 and 9 tell of a great victory that God... Uh, carried out on behalf of his people in battle. And then additionally, the, the refrain in verses 7 and 11 speaks of the Lord as the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of the armies. And these statements seem to allude to a specific occasion in Israel's history where they were confronted with an oncoming enemy. Most scholars believe, as well as I, that this psalm was written during the time of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, when he came upon Israel to attack them. And that is the time when God intervened. Second Kings 18 and 19 talk about the, this king Sennacherib. He came upon the northern tribes of Israel. God used that nation to judge the ten northern tribes of Israel. And they were taken away into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C. Then, following that, about eight years later, they began to lay siege to Judah, the southern kingdom. They were taking city after city among Judah. And finally, they came upon Jerusalem, 185,000 battle-hardened soldiers strong, ready to overtake the city. 
There are several parallels in that historical account with what is written here in Psalm 46. And the importance of making that historical connection is really to emphasize the plight and the situation that the people had gone through in the writing of this psalm. And their proclamation repeated over and over in this psalm, the theme that God is our refuge. And you can see that in each of the three stanzas that the poem is divided in. They're separated by a Hebrew word, salah, which probably means a a musical interlude or a pause for reflection. Oftentimes when the psalms were read or sung, there would be these pauses or salah, and sometimes that was to refer to, they, they were to pause, to think about what had just been stated. Each of these stanzas contain the theme loud and clear that God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our stronghold. The refrain is repeated twice. Verses 7 and 11. Even the beginning and the end of the psalm contain a poetic device to emphasize that point. In the Hebrew, the first three wor- the first words of the psalm and the last words of the psalm say the same thing, that God is our refuge, our stronghold. But at the end, they're written in reverse. And that was done on purpose by the poet, and it's called a, a chiasm. And I bring that up not to be technical, but to indicate that all of these different poetic devices the poet was using, like a big neon sign saying, don't miss this. Don't miss the point that's being made here. God is our refuge. He is the one that provides us strength. He is the one that protects us from the enemy. He is our refuge in the storms of life. He is our cave in the midst of the storm. He is a castle against enemy forces. And like Luther put it, he is a mighty fortress. And in response to this great theme of God is our refuge, the poet then gives us in Psalm 46 three ways to find comfort in God, our refuge, during difficult times. Three ways to find comfort in God, our refuge, during difficult times. The first way is given in verses 1 through 3, that first stanza. And there we find that we are to take comfort in God's presence. The first way is to take comfort in God's presence. Look with me again at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That very first line thrusts us into the theme of the poem that it is God who is a refuge. And the idea there behind the word refuge is the fact that it emphasizes our insecurity and our inability while at the same time emphasizing God's security and His ability to harbor those in distress. We see the same idea in several of the Psalms. David says in Psalm 16:1, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And again, it's Psalm 3740. The Lord helps them, that is the righteous, and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. In fact, this idea of refuge is repeated over and over in the Psalms. In fact, many times in the first 72 Psalms of the Psalter. The psalmist then indicates God is our refuge and our strength, our stronghold. Here in verse 1, that idea gives a, he's a power and, and a defense and protection. But not only that, he also is a source of strength to those going through the struggles. David notes this in Psalm 28, 7, where he says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. And then listen how God's strength affects him. Therefore my heart exults, my heart trusts in him, and I am helped. And with my song I shall thank him. You see, refuge and strength are used together here to communicate God's protection. To communicate that he is the source of encouragement and strength in times of difficulty. Psalm 61.3 reiterates that, where David says, For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. And then notice here in in the psalm in verse 1 of chapter 46, that God is not only a refuge in the midst of calamity, but he also makes himself available at all times during that calamity. He's not far away. He's not someone you have to go and search for diligently. He is ready and always available to be found. He is ever-present. In fact, in the original language, it carries the idea of a continuous nature of it. It's not like he shows up and then leaves. He is continuously, at all times, accessible, available, and present for you in your time of distress. And again, it's not simply that he is around when you need him. For the psalmist adds the idea of he is a very present, a great present, an exceedingly present help in time of trouble. I like how the NIV puts it, that that God is a present help. He is an ever-present help. Think about that. What a comfort. As his child, you don't have to search far and wide or wonder, does he hear my prayers and my difficult situation that I'm in right now? Where is he? You don't have to wonder these things because he is an ever-present, constant help for those who seek him. 
And look at the result of that. Look at the result that it uh, uh, carries out in the in the psalmist here in verses two and three. What look what it produces. Notice the attitude of one who takes refuge in God. This is a key to finding comfort in His presence. Because of the ever-present help of God, our refuge, the poet says, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. The psalmist here is describing a great upheaval from natural disaster. And the word here for change is, is a change of place or condition, a violent removal, or you could translate it a slipping. And I don't think I need to give anyone here in this room an explanation of what he's talking about here, do I? I mean, many of you, if not all of you, have experienced the earth moving, slipping, shaking. I remember the Northwich quake that happened you know, over 10 years ago. And just that idea of, of the earth shaking, I felt in a very real sense as I, I was running down the hallway trying to get my daughter and being thrown from one wall to the other wall and back and forth. Now imagine an earthquake so severe that the mountains would actually be ripped from their foundations and slip into the ocean. That is exactly what he's talking about here. We hear that joke a lot about people wanting to buy beachfront property in Arizona, Nevada, so they'd have a, uh, you know, one day they would have that beachfront. Well, that's what the psalmist is talking about here. He's saying, imagine Southern California slipping into the heart of the sea. And he doesn't stop there. His courage continues. Listen to verse 3. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. He's carrying that natural disaster to the next step. Not only do the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, but the sea begins to come back. The ocean comes back in a great tidal wave, such that, figuratively speaking, the mountains quake at the height of its wave. He's talking here about a tsunami, a great tsunami. And we know the devastation that one of those can cause, do we not? In Indonesia and all that that happened there. That is the type of picture that the psalmist is presenting here. It is one of great terror and devastation caused by these events, by these natural disasters. The first stanza of this poem pictures a disturbing series of events. It is a worst-case scenario. Yet the psalmist declares that because God is his refuge, we will not become afraid. He is given great courage by this psalm. In fact, the idea here is more than, than simply describing the natural disasters and what they what they're doing, but he says, let the waters roar, let them foam, let the mountains quake, bring it on is his attitude. He is full of courage, full of strength. Let the tidal wave come, let it roar in all its fury. We will not become afraid, the psalmist says, for God is our refuge. I mean, it reminds me of that picture, I don't know if you remember, of a lighthouse that's standing in the midst of this huge wave that's coming on, and in the picture you can see this little figure of a person standing by the door, while the wave's going around him. That's the idea the psalmist has here. And I would probably have added to that picture the guy shaking his fist at the wave because he's protected by the lighthouse of God. God is serving as his refuge. That is the picture that the psalmist gives here. Now, God may not choose to deliver you from that storm. That man in the picture could have been washed away. But you know what? He will give you strength in his presence. In the midst of trials, you often hear people say, where is God? What's the answer given here, brothers and sisters? Where is he? The emphatic answer is he is here. If you as his child seek him in the midst of distress, he is ever present, always constantly very ready to give help. Didn't we see that in the life of Christ? Did he not display the heart of compassion and an ever-present help in time of trouble? What did he do when the leper came to him? Saying, Lord, if you're willing, cleanse me. Jesus reached down and grasped him, touched him. What about the widow of Nain? Jack taught on not too long ago in Luke 7, when he came upon the funeral procession and she had lost her only son and and she was there and Christ came and he felt compassion for her. His bowels were moved for her and he rose her son from the dead. What about the multitudes? When they came upon him hungry, he fed them. When they came upon him, even after uh, John the Baptist had died, and the text says that Jesus went away by himself to spend time with his father, and the multitudes followed him. And what did Jesus do? Send them away? No, it says he cared for their sick and helped them. God was always doing that. This is the same ever-present God we have with us today. Take courage. Take courage. He is ever-present to help. 
If God can instill the kind of confidence in the psalmist here to be able to have the courage to take on a storm, can he not instill comfort in you during your trials? Be like those in Second Chronicles 15.4 who it is said in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. Again at the end of this stanza we see Salah. So stop here and reflect on the fact that God is ever-present. Take comfort in God's presence. The second way to find comfort in God as our refuge is during, and during those difficult times is found in the second stanza in verses 4 through 7. And in these verses, the psalmist encourages us to take comfort in God's protection. Take comfort in His protection. Look at verse 4 with me. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy holy dwelling places of the Most High. See, the psalmist forms a contrast here from verse 3 where there's the chaos and the uproar of the seas and, and the foaming to a peaceful stream flowing into the city of God. And that is Jerusalem. Psalm 48 tells us that. Some scholars see this as figurative language for they say, well, there was no river in, in Jerusalem. However, that's not the case. Hezekiah had built a stream, Second Kings twenty twenty and Isaiah twenty two nine. What's the reason for the shift in scenery? Why go from this tumultuous storm and natural disaster to this calm stream running through Jerusalem? Because it's given in the very next verse in verse five. Because God is there. That is why God is in their midst, the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. Attention is now focused on God who is in the midst of his people. The same word here is used for moved as was used earlier in verse 2. The idea of slipping or, or moving. Here we see God's protection in the face of an oncoming enemy. Verses 5 and 6, again, seem to point to the occasion that prompted this psalm was an enemy army that had come and laid siege upon Jerusalem. And notice how God immediately springs into action. God will help her when morning dawns. It is no army, no power of man which makes the city safe, is it? But it is God and God alone who is in her midst. Like the roar of the sea in verse 3, verse 6 describes the roar of the nation coming to attack, but it is to no avail. For in the end of verse 6, it says there that God raises His voice, or, or God thundered His voice, and the earth melted. Now what can we learn from this? How... How do we apply this to our lives? This is talking about a city on the other side of the world in a time that well over 2,700 years ago, most likely. You might be telling me, I'm not in a city that's being surrounded and ready to be invaded by an enemy army. I'm not in that situation. But aren't there events in your life, situations, struggles, perhaps the loss of a job, perhaps stress, the loss of a child or a parent, a, a, a grave sickness, sorrow? Aren't these things in your life like an enemy army ready to lay siege on your heart? In those times, take comfort that God's presence gives his protection. Do you realize that there is no circumstance, there is no power, there is no sickness, there is no disease, there is nothing beyond, uh, the, nothing that, that can get beyond what God allows. You're under his protection. You listen to Psalm 118, it really reflects the heart of this. Verse, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. And listen here. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That is one who is confident in God's protection. And we know Romans eight thirty five and on. It talks about who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, will distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And then in verse 38, he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You hear these words? Take them to heart. These are true. 
God has spoken them. He is in our midst. He can protect us. Do you rely on his protective presence? It reminds me of a time in my childhood. Uh, I was, uh, it was before I was in junior high school. I was raised by my grandparents, and they had a, a ranch. We raised cattle. And there were always a, f- a few cows that were a little more aggressive, and they would charge on a moment's notice. In fact, one in particular was a, a Brahma, and she had these big horns. I was terrified of that cow. I always tried to stay away. At the same time, my, my grandfather father was a, a man's man. I grew up with him. He, he didn't fear anything, uh, except maybe the dentist. Um, you know, but even then, I saw him one time take a pair of pliers and, and rip out a tooth that had a cavity in it. So I'm not kidding. <laughs> Watch it with my own eyes. Then he turned to me and asked, how about you? I, you know. <laughs> but I mean, he, was, he was a strong man. He didn't fear anything. But it was during that time, I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was out in the, in the meadow and, uh, you know, out doing something, and I hear a rustling in the bushes. And I turn, and there she is. She wasn't probably far from the, the drum set to me, and I, oh, it's over. And I, 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 I was paralyzed with fear. <laughs> I couldn't move. But then I heard my grandfather coming behind me. And you know what? That fear went away. It went away. His presence gave me comfort. And believe me, I was terrified. I probably wet my pants because of that. (laughs) (laughs) But he gave me comfort because of his presence. In the same way, God is in the midst of his people. And he's not only behind us, he's in front of us, he's all around us. We have his protection. We need not fear any trouble or distress. And I like how Spurgeon said it. How near is the Lord to the distresses of his saints since he sojourns in their midst? Then we then see in the great refrain of verse 7 that reiterates the comfort in God's protection. It says there, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And hosts here can refer to, to heavenly bodies like the sun or the moon or stars. But in this context, it's referring to armies. It is the armies of heaven. God, as it were, is the the general over the angels, the angelic forces in the heavens. The Lord Sabaoth is his name. That's what the term comes from. The Hebrew word there is Sabaoth, hosts. The Lord of armies. And again, note the Salah at the end of verse 7. That's there to have a stop and to ponder the comfort that we can have in God's protection that he gives. So in times of distress... Not only can you take comfort in God's presence, not only can you take comfort in God's protection that he provides while he is in your midst, but thirdly, we see here in this psalm in the third stanza, you can take comfort in God's sovereignty, comfort in his sovereignty. This is again shown in the last stanza, verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. The poet begins this stanza abruptly. The come and behold is really, behold, right now. He wants to grab our attention and draw it to something. And what is it that he wants to draw our attention to? It is the works of God. Specifically, the works of judgment. The works that show his sovereign control. It is he who brings an end to the wars over all the earth. This is shown in verse 7, the imagery there that he gives where God breaks the bow, where he cuts the spear, where he burns the chariots. It is God who controls the weaponry, not the men who wield them. In our modern vernacular, we might say something like, God, God breaks the M16s, he dismantles the warheads, he, he burns the tanks with a blowtorch. I mean, the message here is very clear and very straight. God is in control. And isn't that the lesson that you're learning from the book of Daniel? Jack's teaching on the evening classes here. Daniel 2.21 proclaims it is he that is God who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Or in Daniel 4.17 he repeats several times over and over to King Nebuchadnezzar. The most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. You see, the scriptures show over and over that God is the one who is in control of the affairs of mankind. 
He's the one who raised up Sennacherib in Assyria to, to take over the northern tribes of Israel. He's the one that then raised up Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to destroy Assyria. Babylon was followed by Persia, which God predicted to Belshazzar in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. That very night, Persia came and destroyed Babylon. Kingdom after kingdom, nation after nation, ruler after ruler, God raises them up and he takes them down. And the psalmist is reminding us of that truth here in this psalm. It is God who determines the end of wars, not mankind. Ephesians 1 tells us that, 111 tells us that message very clearly where it says that God works out all things after the counsel of his will. Or Daniel 4.35, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 46 is simply reiterating that fact, simply emphasizing the fact that God is the one who decides the outcome. The enemy nations that had come upon Israel ready to pounce on them, the psalmist saying, God, God will decide that result. It's in his hands. And they could take great comfort in that, that a good God would decide what is best. In fact, the response that God calls for in the light of trials, in the light of his sovereign power, is given in verse 10. Look there with me. It is there God says, Cease striving or relax and know that I am God. The idea here is, is, is let go. Don't, don't do anything. Don't, don't try to solve all of your problems on your own. And notice the change here from the third person before, the he, to first person, I. God supersedes the poet here to speak directly, to make it very clear his message where he says, I will be established among the nations. I will be established in the earth. God is declaring with full force directly that he is the only all-sovereign, powerful king over all the earth. Oh, what a great comfort that is in the midst of trials. Take comfort in that, that God, the all-powerful God, the all-powerful good God who is sovereign over all the affairs of mankind, He is the one in control. That should bring great comfort. Like that lighthouse, it wasn't moving in the midst of that great storm. Relax. God is in control. God is in control. King Hezekiah did this. Right? The 185,000 battle-hardened troops ready to siege the city Sennacherib had sent his messenger to to try to to stir up fear in the hearts of Hezekiah and the people. And he, he says to Hezekiah, give it up. Give it up, Hezekiah. It's over. You have no hope. We came through Israel, wiped out the ten tribes, took them back to our lands. We've destroyed nation after nation, people after people. You have no hope. In fact, all the cities in in Judah have been taken over. We've laid them waste and now we're coming for you. Don't try to trust in the Lord. The messenger told him that. Don't get the people to trust in the Lord. Let's turn to Isaiah 37 and see what Hezekiah did. Did he, did he sit there and wring his hands with fear and knock his head against the wall or, or, or just cry out in distress and worry and, and fret? Or did he go and consult some other powerful nation like Egypt to help him out? Or did he call his therapist up and say, you know, this, this Sennacherib guy, he's got some issues. I mean, no, what did he do? What did he do? Isaiah 37, verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Notice how he is turning to God's power. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and all their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Hezekiah did not despair. He went straight to God in the midst of... This was distressing. Because from a human side, it was game over. The Assyrians would have no problem coming in and destroying that city. Except for one thing. 
God was in her midst. God was there. So we know what happened there. That night, an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, wiped out 185,000 troops. All of them were gone one night. God chose in that circumstance to defend the city and destroy her enemies. Do you take comfort in the fact that your sovereign, all-powerful God is in control? I mean, I learned a valuable lesson in this regard during that Northridge quake. Uh, uh, that night when it happened, it was middle of what, three or four in the morning, I can't remember. But we went out and stayed in the car because we were on the second floor of an apartment. And I didn't know if there was any damage or if the thing would fall down. So we went out and stayed out there until daylight. And at daybreak, we went back in to kind of assess what had happened and see the damage in the apartment. And, you know, there was stuff everywhere, food all over the floor and furniture had fallen down and just it was a mess. Then I went into our, it was a one-bedroom apartment. I went into our bedroom. Uh, We had Hannah and Bethany, our our two kids at that time. And uh, Hannah, it was a large open closet, so we had her sleep in a playpen there in the closet. And when I looked down in her playpen, I got sick to my stomach because in her playpen was this large tool chest full of tools and a heavy fan that had fallen from the shelf onto her playpen during that earthquake before we had gotten her out. You know, despite my foolishness, you know, living in Southern California, duh, you don't put stuff up high like that. But despite that, God preserved her from serious injury. It was a heavy, heavy tool chest. God sovereignly intervened in that circumstance and chose to, to preserve her. I had no control over that. I wasn't there. No, I didn't even know that it happened. Yet God was at work. God was at work. What is the message God is delivering to you here in this third stanza? What should you take from this? Brothers and sisters, you have a powerful God. Your God is able to deal with that difficult situation at work. Your God is able to deal with with your sickness. He's able to deal with that tumor. He's able to deal with the loss of a loved one. He's able to deal with the potential loss of a loved one. That sorrow, the stress, all the issues of life that come upon you. God is able to deal with all of those. He could deal with 185,000 soldiers in one night. He can deal with what's troubling you. Your God can change the heart of your husband or wife who may not be walking with the Lord. He can change the heart of your rebellious son or daughter who's walked away from God. He can bring restoration to your marriage. He can bring restoration to your family. God can do any of these things. Do you believe that? Now, I know it's a difficult thing to, we talk about God's sovereignty in the midst of, of trials and sometimes wonder why he would allow these things to come in our life. He, if he is in control of all things, why is he allowing these difficulties to come upon me? That's a difficult question. Allowing the loss of, of a parent or four daughters in the ocean. Allowing sickness, allowing distress, allowing the loss of a job, strife in the home. It's a difficult issue. If God is in control of those things, why do they still continue? Well, I like in Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, he wrestles with this issue. Listen to what he says. Quote, I knew the truth regarding God's sovereignty. What I had to do was to decide if I would trust him, even when my heart ached. He goes on to say, I will say this next statement as gently and compassionately as I know how. Our first priority in times of adversity is to honor and glorify God by trusting him. We tend to make our first priority the gaining of relief from our feelings of heartache or disappointment or frustration. And this is a natural desire. And God has promised to give us grace sufficient for our trials and peace for our anxieties. But just as God's will is to take precedence over our will, so God's honor is to take precedence over our feelings. We honor God by choosing to trust Him when we don't understand what He is doing or why He has allowed some adverse circumstances to occur. And that really is the issue, to trust God. Again, note the refrain in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Take a moment to ponder and take comfort in the sovereign good hand of God. So the prescription that Psalm 46 gives for the troubles and trials in life is to find comfort in God's presence, to find comfort in His protection, and ultimately to find comfort in His sovereign hand. And all of you in this room I know have experienced 
will experience or maybe you're experiencing now a great difficulty and distress in your life. There may be some here who are at a low point, maybe on the verge of depression or despair. Some of you may be confronted with the loss of a loved one or the potential loss of a loved one. Some of you may simply be overwhelmed, feeling overwhelmed with the issues of life. Maybe your young mother and just the the stress of raising young children. That can be very difficult. Maybe there's stress on your job. Maybe there's stress in your home. Maybe there's some relationships in your life that just, there's stress. You have a choice before you this morning. In the midst of these distresses, in the midst of these troubles, how will you respond to them? Where do you turn first when calamity strikes? To whom or to what do you turn when distress comes? Will you be like Hezekiah who ran straight to the Lord and laid out his problems before him and called out to him? Or will you try to ignore them by playing dead like you're told to do when a bear comes and if you play dead, you'll hope that he goes away? Or maybe you'll try to run from it through drinking or through drugs or eating or relationships Spending money, sports, entertainment. Maybe you'll be paralyzed by it like I was with that cow and just sitting there in fear and despair and doubt and thinking, oh, it's over. Or some of you I know, you respond to distresses by just saying, I'm going to gut it out. I'm going to rely on my own strength to do this one. Some of you turn right to others. When a trouble comes upon you, you get on the phone and you, you call some other human instead of going straight to the only one that can provide comfort. You see, Satan offers a great variety of escapes, does he not? We have a variety to choose from, but none of them last. And in fact, all of these are self-destructive, and in the end, you end up in a worse state. As opposed to that large variety offered by Satan, God offers only one remedy. That is himself. Do you find yourself responding to the trials of life by doing anything but turning to God first. I mean, that, that would give the picture of, of, like a, of a child who is, who is hurt or injured or scared running to a sibling or, or running to a stranger or, or someone else rather than running to their parents, which are right there in the room. Wouldn't that show you a picture? They don't really trust their parents. If your consistent response to trials is to run to anything but our Heavenly Father, you need to ask yourself where you're really at with Him. Because that is a basic trust to turn and run to God. If you have sought forgiveness for your sin, you have placed your trust in Christ through His death on the cross for you, and you know that, that He has saved you, then run to your Father in difficult times. Take comfort in His presence, in His protection, in His sovereignty. He is your refuge and strength, is He not? He is your very present help in times of trouble. It is He and He alone that provides protection, that provides deliverance, that provides strength in your situation. Brothers and sisters, God has a plan and a purpose in all of our trials. And Psalm 46 doesn't tell us that He's going to deliver Him from us all. It's not a promise that He's going to deliver us from our trials. But what it does do is it reminds us of the God who strengthens us within those trials. Right, Romans 8, 28 and 29 is such a comforting text in regards to these trials. It says there, I know a lot of you can quote this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You see, God desires all of us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And He works all the things, all these trials in our lives, all our situations to that end, to bring us to conformity to His Son. It reminds me of a, of a story, a, a man that I knew up in Idaho, who had, uh, he had three young daughters, and his wife was pregnant with a, a fourth child, and she was about six months pregnant, and she got sick, and, and they, they took her to the hospital, and you know what? She never came out. She died there with that baby. He had three little girls, I think under five years old, that he was left with. And about a year later, I had a chance to talk with him, and I said, how did you manage to endure that trial? And what he told me 
He said, if I didn't believe that God causes all things to work together for good, I don't know what I would have done. He rested on God's sovereign good hand. He didn't understand why God had brought this situation in his life, but he knew it was for the good. He knew it was for his good. It's so encouraging to me that, that God promises that comfort. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious for anything. For, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a promise of comfort there. It's like when your child may get hit or hurt or scared and, and comes running to you in pain and sometimes you may not be able to take that pain away, but you, you hold that child, do you not? You comfort that child. I remember so clearly and vividly like yesterday when our youngest daughter, Gabrielle, was, was born and she had all of these birth defects and they rushed her from the, the birth room to, to the newborn uh, ICU. And there they... They took her from that safe and warm environment inside of her mother and they, they put her on this uh, sterile, bright-lit table, this heat lamp, and put probes in her everywhere and tubes everywhere. We're doing all these tests and she couldn't sleep and she was under constant duress and stress and you could just see it. She was, she was troubled, this little infant there. And I, I was there with her trying to comfort her, but, I mean, imagine how you'd feel sitting there on this table with this bright light above you, not having any idea what's going on and in pain and, and distress. Tina hadn't been able to see her yet. Uh, she had had a C-section, and so she was in recovery. And uh, that evening, she was able to come down and spend time with Bree. And, and I'll never forget the, the first moment that they took Bree from uh, that table, that heat lamp, and they put her in Tina's arms. And that whole day, she had been distressed, even when people held her. But they put her in Tina's arms, and Tina spoke to her. And immediately, she was at peace. I've never seen anything like it. At the voice and comfort of her mother, she rested there in peace. That is how it is with your God. You could be in the midst of some terrible difficulties right now. But you know what? In God's arms, there is perfect peace. Take comfort in that. Take comfort in that. He is your refuge and strength. He is your ever-present help in time of trouble. Horatio Spafford found refuge in the midst of unimaginable suffering. Again, he went through something I don't think any of us will have to endure, but he took comfort in the presence of God, in the protection of God, and in the good sovereign hand of God. And I thought it would be fitting if we ended our time together by singing his great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. If you guys could stand and turn to hymn 705. Hymn 705, we'll sing that together. Stay. 
before we sing the third line a cappella, I want you to be reminded of what Spurgeon called the best thing that was ever said out of heaven. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Father God, in your presence, no matter what is going on, May we proclaim, as Horatio's song did, that it is well with our soul. Father, you are our comfort in distress. You are our protection. You are, uh, Lord, uh, ever-present. We can take comfort in your sovereign good hand working in our lives. And, Lord, we don't know at times why things are happening as they happen, but we know, God, that you are a stronghold and that you provide comfort and protection in those times and we may not be delivered from them lord but we know that we are resting in your arms we can have peace god a peace that the world doesn't understand because they don't have you god may we take comfort in you and cry out to you in those times of distress be like hezekiah and and run to you god we thank you lord that you are there and we thank you for being our refuge We thank you that through Christ we can call you Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.